James Brown, author, former magazine editor. The, the first graphic design I would say I am conscious of having experienced in life is probably the, the beginning and end credits of the TV show, Doctor Who. And I've got two visual memories of being a, a really young kid, really, really young, maybe like three or two or three or three or four, something like that. And they're both television memories. And, and one was Arthur Brown with his song, The God of Hellfire, performing on top of the pops with his head on fire and, and, and kind of dark eye makeup like Alice Cooper later had. I guess that was sort of a one-off, but the thing that was a conscious design presentation were those beginning and end credits. And the reason that, I guess one of the reasons I thought about that for this interview was I've been watching Doctor Who recently with my seven-year-old. I'm not a big sci-fi head. I'm not, I don't have any Star Wars dolls. I don't, I don't have a TARDIS or anything like that sort of thing. It was just a, um, it's just a TV show I liked as a kid, but watching it again now has made me think about those graphics. They, they, you, they're in, they're striking because the music that goes with them is really well matched. They suggest an otherness, really, a, a, a difference. They, they suggest. I mean, it's. It's a synthesizer, piece of synthesizer music, and, and, and the graphics are, I don't even know what they've done there, really early computer graphics where, you, you know, you seem to be traveling. It's much the same device as they used in Star Wars when they go into hyperspeed or whatever it's called, and, they, and, and, and suddenly the Milky Way and everything that's around them just kind of goes into a solid blur. Um, and it was just... It wasn't magical, but it was definitely, an, it, it gave the concept that this was somebody not from Earth, even though lots of his adventures took place on Earth. And even now it's, it's an engaging sound and it's an emotive sound for me. And the images, they just, they just take me back to being a kid. They're the first things that I remember very clearly that were a, a deliberately conceived visual uh, presentation and it, they totally last and you can look at them there's, there's been about four or five different changes but what's great is when 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 Doctor Who came back in the early 2000s with a really great guy running it the guy that had done it done Queer as Folk he's he's made it very sharp he's made it like one of those dual programs that adults can watch and see things and kids might not know it's and probably vice versa he maintained that sort of logo. The, the solarization of kind of zooms behind the, the, in those days it was just the doctor's head. And I can't remember whether it was Patrick Troughton who was the second Doctor Who in the mid sixties or whether it was John Pertwee, probably John Pertwee because he's the doctor that I remember first. Uh, and his big head of white hair that looks a little bit like, you know, the top of a, nuclear mushroom cloud. He's just got this big billowing white curly hair. And um, yeah, that, that was it. That would, that would be the first thing. And I think 
you know, obviously the, the, the next creative things I remember in my life are the records my mum and dad had, which were like Ichiku Park and Lazy Sunday Afternoon by the Small Faces or Lady Madonna by the Beatles or th things like that. Um, so maybe that was the first time that I was really engaged with music and, and that would go on for me creatively to be something that, that, that my career started with 20 years later, what it was, 15, 16 years later. What I'm currently working on is a book which I've been trying to write but trying not to finish for the last six years. And actually it goes way, way back. It goes over 25 years, I guess. And originally it was just scribbled notes when I was drunk and then occasionally sitting down with a notepad. And I guess it's a memoir about the successful period of publishing that I worked in really the last golden era of magazines and my part in it with interfering factors like my excessive drug and drink use, um, what was going on, the drivers that was going on in my family life. And it's difficult, you know, I don't think I'm autistic, but I've got a very, you know, people have repeatedly tried to put me on the spectrum. So I've got a very, very, detailed collection of memories about so many different things and it's a real challenge you know if you've done a lot of things um to kind of edit that down into a story and, and try to explain to people what's important to you at the same time as writing about things that that they might be interested in i think whatever art you're in whatever form of creativity you're in there's that balance of, do you just do it for yourself? Or do you, do you do something that's gonna attract other people? And it's a conscious decision that, you know, it's creative people who just are creative for themselves. If they become successful, then that's fantastic. So long as they keep able to do the things that they're comfortable with or creative people that do things for themselves and nobody sees it or creative people who do things that masses of people experience. So that's what I'm wrestling with a little bit. That's the, the sort of, how do I tell this story without putting everything I've ever said or seen or done in? And I often used to do things along the lines of what would make a good anecdote. I've just got so many things that I've done on different days in different situations. Sometimes now I'm, I'm talking about, I guess, that my age is from my late, late teens to my late thirties. And sometimes I have to check and think, did, did, did that happen? Or did, is that an exaggeration or, so that's what I'm doing. Um, I find it a lot easier to talk about my publishing life and my life working in the music business as a music writer and editor. And then the success I had creating Loaded and then publishing ventures after that. It, it's a lot easier to write, to talk about it than it is to write down on in long form. I'm fine writing Instagram messages, posts, but just trying to con make it concise, you know, it, it's a difficult thing, but it, that's basically, I think the other thing is, you know, I got offered a really big publishing deal in 1998. I wish I'd taken it and just done it then. Um, I'm now writing it as a different person. 
I don't drink. I might ride in my bike for a nature reserve. I've got kids. I kind of see things in slightly different manners. Things that I used to think were fantastic and amazing don't bother me now. So that's an unusual challenge as well. And I'm just really hoping I can get this out of the way and done. I'm sure the publishers are because it's two years late. And of course, the longer it goes on, the less interested it feels like anyone will be. Um, so that's what I'm currently working on. It's a, it's a memoir and it covers drugs, drink, music, magazines, mayhem, travel, publishing. There's a lot of funny stories in it and hopefully some people will get something out of it. Maybe it'll help a couple of people deal with their own excesses. So that's, you know, the, the thing with writing a book is you can write the thanks to list and come up with a cover 55 times before you've even written the first chapter. It's, it's um, I think it's important to find out when you can be creative and then just being consistent. I don't think I'm very good at writing books. My last book, my only book that I've written before that did pretty well. Sold about 10,000 copies and that was just about my life playing five-a-side football. Um, and that was easier because it was basically just opinion, whereas writing a life memoir autobiography, whatever you want to call it. It's a, as I said, it's all about balancing up. So that's that. I'm forever saying I must put this in my book and then make a note of it and then lose the note. I've got just piles and piles and piles of files and print out. Yeah, but I've got a publisher. I was talking to somebody about it the other day and they were like, well, why do you get a publisher? And I said, I've got a publisher. I've had a publisher for five years. Anyway, so that's that. That's what I'm working on, right? That's that's what my that's not my professional work. I do a little bit of journalism still, a bit of travel writing, a bit of opinion writing, and some sort of writing about my life for the Times, the Telegraph. Just I wrote some pieces I was proud of this year for GQ. I wrote a piece about how we interact how we behave when people we interact with on social media die, whether we know them well or don't know them well. That was a really interesting article to write because you feel you know somebody really well, but actually because you see their output every day, but you don't really know them at all. You don't know how tall they are or what, what the house or the family are like or anything. You just look. So that, that, was, that was a good piece. That was a challenging piece. That's on gq.com or gq.co.uk, if you put my name in and social media death, something like that. And then I wrote another piece about a year ago, which I was really pleased with, which was the challenge as a parent when my son started rooftopping, which was the craze. And I guess it's an art form of climbing cranes and, and, and getting on top of buildings just to get great photographs and video. But as a parent, that was terrifying. That was worse than anything I ever felt about my own behaviour. Um, so I wrote that piece and I like that. So I think I've kind of, uh, when I was a teenager, I wrote a lot about music and that's how I got into being a music writer. That's how I developed a professional career in publishing. Just because I was a massive music fan, I liked writing about it. And now I find in, I'm at a different stage of my life and I'm, I am finding new things to write about that are challenging me again. 
I'm kind of past that stage now where I think I should still be doing the sort of writing I did 10 or 20 years ago. Although I did interview Tim Burgess from the Charlatans for the first time since possibly their first enemy interview. So that's, you know, I've been enjoying that. My girlfriend said to me recently, you do what you wanted to do when you were 19. And that, that kind of gave me some uh, sort of serenity, really, about what I do. Because I would still love to be editing a big, vibrant, exciting, challenging magazine, but they don't exist anymore. So that's a quite a strange thing when your industry disappears. But anyway, so no, I'm good. I'm good. I, I like the writing. Just got to finish the book. I think the advice I would give is not necessarily the right advice for everybody. But what I remember about when I was a music journalist was that there were some bands in the 80s. It were very different to everybody else. There was a band from Liverpool called The Farm, and they had had a record produced by Madness. They were kind of like a post-mod, post-football, casual pop group. The music wasn't amazing, but what was, what was unique about them was they wore training shoes and jeans and sweatshirts with sportswear brands on them. And that's a common look now, but it wasn't then. Nobody in any bands dressed like that. At the time, their contemporaries would have been wearing eyeliner, black spiky hair, kind of goth type rock things or leather jackets or, you know. And so that was one of the bands. And then there was another band really who wanted to be like a kind of a 60s chanteurs like Jacques Brel. And that was, and at one point the guy faked falling out of a window, I think, being on stage in a, in a wheelchair. And that was Pulp. And Pulp, like the farm, although they were nothing like the farm, were really different to everybody else. And I wasn't a fan of them. And then the third band I remember was some anarchists that I used to see in around squat gigs and political gigs and occupations and demonstrations in Leeds and Bradford, and they were called Chumbawamba. And I thought their music was terrible. A couple of them would be topless. They'd have political messages written in lipstick on their chests. The singer would have a cardboard box on his head. And I mean, it was, it was terrible, but they were always there and they were always doing their thing. And they were totally, they were vegetarians, which wasn't a thing at all, really. In, in, in the early 80s, mid 80s. Now these bands are long gone. If you're a student now, I doubt you might know Pulp because they had some hits. And then there was another band called Happy Mondays who were sort of a bit later and they looked a little bit like the farm and they were different as well. And the point I'm getting to is all four of those bands, but particularly Pulp, Chumbawamba and Happy Mondays, they kept doing what they were into. They didn't, change with the trends their music developed but they still looked visually how they looked when they became pop stars and all four of all of those bands became big bands and uh, had big hit singles headlined festivals sold a lot of records in europe and america and it's unfathomable to come it was a, it was just you would just wouldn't have considered that a possibility in, in kind of 1983 or 84 when they were starting out. So I think that is one piece of advice I would give. Just if you absolutely believe in what you're doing, ignore what anybody else says. If it's different to everybody else, that's good. And you might be out of fashion for nine years, 
but eventually the clock of life will roll around and suddenly it'll be your time. And um, other people have to shift and change. You know, other people become creative successes because they, they alter what they do and they develop what they do. But I just wanted to say in those cases, the fact that they stayed the same and just kept going and kept going and kept going. And eventually the world came into alignment with them. 